Good morning, everybody. Uh, I've recently been planning a trip with my sweetheart. Over the years, we have learned the value of uh, a preparation. We've learned that when you prepare a lot, it makes for good travel experience. But we have also learned to embrace the unexpected, those surprise events that are always part of traveling. When the train breaks down, when terrorists attack, when the elevator sticks between floors. And, uh, and that also is a really wonderful part of life when you learn to embrace it. That ability to enjoy the planned and the unplanned is really important. And it's not just important for traveling, it's important for all of life. Over the last few years here, we have studied the, the planned disciplines of the Christian life, the intentional disciplines. These are intentional choices that, that Christians do, practices we do that are found in Scripture that, that, we, that we engage in so that we can grow up spiritually and, and live out who we are. Those intentional disciplines include things like the discipline of grace. That's maybe the hardest discipline to learn in life. Learning how to take all I am and let it be empowered by all God is so that I am living by God's empowerment. The discipline of humble submission where I obey scripture. The disciplines of Bible intake, uh, study, Bible study, sermons, uh, memorizing scripture. Disciplines of worship, songs and praises and, and, uh, and other acts. The discipline of simplicity, learning contentment and godliness with contentment is great gain. The disciplines of voluntary sacrifice, where you give, where you, where you serve. We've, we've learned about the disciplines of dialoguing with God, uh, praying and meditating and etc. And the discipline of fellowship, engaging with Jesus' people. These are the planned activities that make every day, every month, every year richer for the Christian and for the people who are around him or her. But there are also some unexpected storms, some unplanned activities that come into every person's life journey. These are the painful turns that cause every person in every age to drop their hands to their side, look up to heaven, and mutter, really? Why? And when we say really, why, whether we say it in, in disappointment or frustration or even anger, that's when we enter the realm of the unintentional disciplines. That's the title I gave this in your notes. Look there in your center of your bulletin. Uh, if you're online, we are so glad to be with you. Your host should have already posted. You can find it there in the feed a place to get the notes. The unintentional disciplines. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team uh, described the unintentional disciplines this way in our discussion. Unintentional disciplines are the difficult times in a Christian's life when the realities of the fallen world and separation from God weigh heavy. Yet, these present an opportunity for spiritual growth. Close quote. Today we begin a new series, a study of Habakkuk. I taught this book 11 years ago here and I am very humble to get to do so again. It may be my favorite book in the Bible. To understand Habakkuk, we have to start with darkness. Let's discuss the unintentional discipline of darkness. There are times when you simply cannot find your way because all around you and even within you is so dark. I'm sure that at least some of you have experienced the pains of the discipline of darkness when the Lord seems to make all of life this overwhelming, uh, claustrophobic, myopic shade. Many years ago, uh, Raymond Edmond was president of Wheaton College. In a lecture that he gave in 1946, Dr. Edmond said this. This is really well said. I liked it so much, in fact, I put it in your notes. He said, there is a dark night of the soul for some of God's true children, a prolonged and painful period when God seems altogether absent, when, when health is gone, when friends forsake or aggravate, when days are dark and nights are long, when tomorrow holds no promise of light or alleviation from hopelessness. 
this darkness brings us haunting shadows that insinuate God has forgotten to be gracious. God's will surely would not bring you into the shadow. God has forsaken you because you disobeyed him and a thousand similar subtle snares of Satan. Close quote. That is a fine description, is it not? Isaiah's poetry also captures these times of darkness. I'd like you to to consider the first four lines of of the verse that we label Isaiah 50, verse 10. It says this, Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? And at that point you expect, and all these good things happen, right? That's what you expect. No, 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 no. Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in what, everybody? Darkness and has no light. In Hebrew parallelism, and, and, and Hebrew poetry depends on parallelism, these are the same thought repeated. These are the same aspects of the same person. Somebody's fearing the Lord, listening to his servant. By the way, servant in Isaiah is always the Messiah. So you're listening to the Messiah, and yet you also are walking in dark. Really? Why? Now look at what God says at the last two lines of the poem. Here's the whole poem. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. Lean on God. When you're, when you're fearing God and following the servant, yet you're still also in darkness, do not doubt in the darkness what God showed you to be real in the light. Re- let's read it responsively. You join me on the underlined parts. Who among you fears the Lord? To his servant. Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. Amen. That's what we learn with the unintentional disciplines, the ones that we would never willingly choose. We learn to fully rely on God. In the darkness, we learn to trust what God told us back in the light. And the same can be said for the other unintentional disciplines. I haven't time to go into the rest of these today, but you will no doubt understand the situations they represent just by the the words. These are some of the other unintentional disciplines, the discipline of delay. I hate that one. The discipline of difficulty, the discipline of disappointment, the discipline of discontentment, the discipline of disease, the discipline of disillusionment. Now, I have a warning for you, okay? I, I, I know some of you, and I know that some of you are like me. You do not enjoy the dark parts of the story. You like to skip ahead because you know that it's always a happy ending. The Bible always, the Bible always has a happy ending, and you like biblical-type stories. I understand And the study that we're starting today is going to get to this joyful ending that is the biblical norm, but it won't get there today. That positive, to to totally abuse the words of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, there will come a day when the sun will again shine on the world of men, but it is not this day, okay? If that's too heavy for you, I understand. I am not at all offended if you need to get up here in a second and go back to the to the FB Kids building and check out one of the VeggieTale videos and uh, watch that while we're slogging through the pit of despair. However, before you bolt, before you leave to Bob and Larry, let me, let me share one thought with you. The darkness is really important. The unintended disciplines serve a great and noble purpose. They make us fully rely on God like nothing else can. The darkness also gives us a contrast in which we can sometimes see the beauty of God's light better. And therefore, I encourage you not to fear the dark, but instead milk these unintentional disciplines for all they are worth, and they are worth a lot. As we, as we discussed this in our pulpit team, my partners had these further thoughts. They really had, as always, brilliant ideas. Look what they said. Uh, Fran Legband said, these disciplines let us see ourselves as we really are, little, frail, and dependent. 
They cure us of thinking that our strength is our God. David Wade said, I have faced much darkness, and those have been the times when I have learned the most about my own sinfulness and the depth of passages like like James 1 and Romans 5, which you can read this afternoon. Cindy Sharp said, we can't get to the astonishing great news of God if we don't first see how dark the darkness is. Learning to walk is accompanied by falling down. Close quote. Well said. Now, how many people here have ever had to construct something, whether it was a school project or at work, putting together Ikea furniture, uh, building something for school? Raise your hand. You've ever had to construct something. Okay. Here's a bold truth for you about what you did, about the mechanics of building. Every single piece of, piece of construction that you have ever done, all the mechanical work anyone has done since 200 BC, all of it is merely footnotes from the work of this man, Archimedes. Archimedes is the great mechanical construction thinker of all time. Let me just give you an example. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who himself was no mean mathematician, he was so inspired by Archimedes' book, this book uh, on the equilibrium of planes, that, that, uh, by the way, in, in, in the equilibrium of planes, um, Archimedes shows first person ever to figure out how to find the center of gravity, the balance between differing size structures that were two-dimensional uh, objects. Okay, really, really fascinating work. Uh, da Vinci was so moved by that that he went and developed a theorem for finding the center of gravity in solid three-dimensional objects. Uh, and he was, rightly, very proud of his work in his thing he called the dodecahedron. And, and that's great. But unknown to Leonardo, Archimedes had already discovered that 1,700 years before. That's right. 1,700 years earlier, Archimedes had already figured out how to locate the center of gravity in linear three-dimensional objects. In fact, in fact, he had thought this through so well. Archimedes had figured out how to find the center of gravity of curved, solid, three-dimensional objects, math that was far, far beyond Leonardo da Vinci's capacity. The only reason Leonardo didn't know about Archimedes' deeper thought was that Archimedes' book, this book, The Method of Mechanical Theorems, it had been lost for 2,000 years. In fact, it was only just recently rediscovered. Uh, Archimedes' work was discovered in 1998. Two experts were looking at this book, this beautiful thousand-year-old Christian prayer book, and they recognized that it was a pamphlet set. That that means it was... um, you, in, the, in the Middle Ages, you would take a, a, a book that had a scroll or a book that had good parchment that you kind of wanted to preserve. It was good stuff, but you needed to use it because parchment was very expensive. So you would take it, and you would cut it into pieces for a, for a codex, for a book, and, and you would then write from the other side on it. And they realized there's something written here, and they discovered the only extant copy in the world of Archimedes' method, a 2,200-year-old masterpiece. Now, I only bring that up because it parallels what you and I are going to do over the next few weeks. In the middle of this Christian book, your Bible, there's a little treatise that has been very rarely studied over the past 2,600 years. Now, it's not turned sideways and written over like Archimedes' method, but nonetheless, Habakkuk is very rarely read. The book of Habakkuk is a lost masterpiece that is worthy of our rediscovery. I think you're going to find yourself in awe of this incredible work further. I think you're going to I think you're going to see a very important truth when it comes to the unintentional disciplines of life. All of history consists merely of footnotes to Habakkuk. What Archimedes is to mechanics, Habakkuk is to the study of delay and disappointment and difficulty and darkness. Habakkuk is the master thinker about the unintentional disciplines. So, my dear brilliant Leonardo-type friends, come with me to the feet of the true master. Let's learn from God's spoken word through the mouth of a genius who lived long before we, who 
who knew how to move the world. Let's learn how to move the world. And I mean that. If Leonardo da Vinci could change the world with the little bit of Archimedes that he had available to him, and by the way, da Vinci did move the world, then you and I can make a massive difference with the whole book of Habakkuk, which is wonderfully available to us. All God's people said? All right, open up your Bible to Habakkuk, as we said it in Germany. It's a perfect name for German. Habakkuk. Uh, open it up. Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's start at the very, let's start at the very beginning. Very good. Um, the pronouncement that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Stop right there. On the right side of our notes, this is dubbed the burden. Let me explain why. Habakkuk's pronouncement here is a great load. The Hebrew verbiage makes that clear. The Hebrew Massah, uh, by the way, uh, Massah is pronounced, um, this Hebrew word is pronounced exactly the way you would, you would speak if you were from deep east Texas and you were talking about the tool you own that you use to cut wood, okay? Masal, that's how it's pronounced, okay? It's your fancy Hebrew word for the day. All my east Texas friends, let's practice it. Talk about your saw, ready? One, two, three, Masal, that's right, Masal, that's how it's pronounced. It occurs 67 times in the Old Testament. It is uh, derived, it's, a, it's an old noun derived from a really old verb, which means to, to leverage or to lift. Uh, Massah was popular among the prophets, especially Isaiah. He liked this word. Walt Kaiser is one of my favorite scholars. He, he discusses how the prophets use Massah to describe a, a, a burden. He says this, these prophecies all emphasize the grave and solemn note in their contents. Uh, the modern versions that translate Massah as utterance or oracle miss the aspect of verdict or pronouncement so properly pointed out in the old Jerusalem Bible. Habakkuk's oracle then is a heavy burden. It's not going to end that way, but we need to understand this is how it starts. For Habakkuk, the word Massah indicates the weight of knowing just enough to really be upset. Habakkuk sees all the evil of life. You're going to see this, all the evil of life, and he sees enough to know that things are bad, but he doesn't yet see how God's going to make it all good. By the way, knowing just enough to be upset is pretty much a common human condition because we live in darkness. We lack the ability to see very far ahead. Knowledge is often a burden for us. For example, when our first son was born, he, uh, he had a heart murmur. Now, that's that's not a particularly grave diagnosis, nobody, unless you had our past history. You see, our first child, our daughter, was born with heart defects that were so severe she had four surgeries before she was two months old and was very, very seriously compromised. So, so when our physician came up to do the well baby visit with our son three years later and everybody's in the room and all laughing and talking, he puts the stethoscope to his ears and he hears a swooshy noise and suddenly he got very serious. In fact, he used that voice that doctors only use when they're trying to make sure nobody panics. He turned and looked at me and he said, Wayne, would you please ask all the visitors to leave the room? Your blood just chills when you hear that. I got everybody out of the room and then Guy listened again and he handed me the stethoscope and I listened and we looked at each other and neither of us liked what we heard. We knew just enough to be really upset. Now, so that you know the good news, an echocardiogram an hour later showed no big problem. There was no big problem. Little tiny holes in his heart, those are very common. Much of the populace is born with them. They closed up on their own like they usually do. Everything was fine. But from where we stood then, we didn't know that. We knew just enough to be really scared. I like how Cindy Sharp put it in our pulpit team dialogue. Uh, she said this, we forget what we know to be true about the unseen God when we're faced with the burdens of what is seen in this world. 
That's why our burdens seem so heavy, because we know just enough to be defeated. Darkness, delay, difficulty, disappointment, disease, disillusionment, they threaten to defeat us. Isn't that true? Raise your hand. Who here has ever faced one of these unintentional disciplines? You've ever faced one of these battles? Raise your hand. You liar. Didn't raise your hand back there? Yeah, very good. Sorry, shouldn't have said that out loud. You lovely person, bless your heart. Um, These disciplines are unintentional for us, but for all their pain, remember, they do one great service. They force us to wrestle with God. By making us ask these why questions, the, the pains and problems of life deepen our relationship with God. There was a great old British preacher, uh, G. Campbell Morgan. He saw Habakkuk's battle as a critical part of every single Christian's life. I want you to look at his quote in our notes. This is really, really good. Um, He said, knowledge of God creates problems. If there's no God in heaven, then we have no problem about sin and suffering, no problem about the slum and the tenement house and the oppression of the poor and the prosperity of the rich and sinful. But the moment you admit of an all-powerful governing God, you are face-to-face with your problems. If you say this causes you none, I question the strength of your faith. Knowledge of God creates problems. Fuller knowledge of God answers them every one. That seems to me to be the great lesson of Habakkuk, close quote. He is right. And in our own darkness, I submit to you that we can do no better than to walk the same trail as that taken by God's prophet. Again, Habakkuk is the master here. He is the perfect guide for working out the mechanics of these problems. So let's look at what Habakkuk does with this burden, and I think we're going to get some guidance on how to handle our own. First thing Habakkuk does, he questions God's seeming indifference. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, how long, O Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? What's bothering Habakkuk? The fact that everything is screwed up. Why doesn't God care? Habakkuk is questioning God's seeming indifference. Prayers appear to be unheard. That's a deep theological problem. There's violence. There's ugliness all around. God doesn't appear to be saving. Does he even care? I recently talked with a fine young Christian man who was facing some real stress and hurt, a time of unintentional discipline. And he shared with me that he has been so dismayed over God's seeming indifference that he's begun to wonder if maybe the deists were right. Maybe the Bible's wrong. Maybe God just wound up the world like a, like a deist says and, and they just let it go, abandoning everybody here to their own devices. That's what this guy was talking to God about. He said, I, I, I got to confess to you, this is what I'm talking to God about. I said, woohoo, good for you. I applauded that conversation because that's exactly what Habakkuk went to God for, to wrestle through the almighty seeming indifference. I am convinced that this young man will learn what Habakkuk learned. That God is actually intricately working his will. The deists are wrong. But one must start here. You've got to start by honestly questioning God. The Bible calls this a lament. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean Habakkuk is whining. There's a big difference between whining and lament. Whining presupposes entitlement. This is why most of what you do, kids, is whining. It presupposes an entitlement, not so lament. Lament knows that even though God is gracious and God is good, I deserve absolutely nothing. In fact, what I deserve is worse than nothing. Entitlement, uh, a whining, usually contains, in fact, it almost always contains selfish motives. And here's what's most horrible about them. They're usually hidden. Uh, This is why we try to use victim status to get our way, because we can can hide our selfish motives behind a a victim status, and uh, and it's just whining. Lament is not like that. Lament is honest-to-God dialogue. Oh, there may be selfish motives there, but they're open. They're, they're, Lord, this is who I am, engaging honestly. 
You've got to start here. Again, the discussion we had about this among our pulpit team was really rich, just like the ones you'll have in, with your friends and your groups. Here's another insight. This is from one of my friends on the pulpit team. <clears throat> uh, Lason Ward says, Lament through the Holy Spirit moves one from me-centeredness to God-centeredness. Your distinction between whining and lament resonated with me. Lason says, if the motive of my heart is to have an honest, authentic dialogue with God, and if I'm seeking in this process of lament to understand God's heart and mind and surrender to his will, then I am moving from me-centeredness to God-centeredness. But if all I'm bringing to God is a laundry list of complaints and entitlement demands, then I am whining. Close quote. Well said, Lason. Don't be a whiner. Do talk honestly to God. Habakkuk did. Next, Habakkuk questions God about his seeming insensitivity. Look at verses 3 and 4. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective. Injustice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Again, the prophet goes to God. That's the key. He wonders why there has to be such nastiness all around him. If he lived among us today, Habakkuk would, would very likely be asking, Lord, how can it be that the United States government is so willing to trade human rights for political and economic gain? He would no doubt question, how can it be, Lord, that, that there are people who grow hungry in the most prosperous nation in world history? How can it be, Lord, he would probably say, that there are, there are not nearly as many people going hungry as what others pretend so they can use that as a political tool? How can it be, he would wonder, that men beat each other senseless on television while millions cheer, that women are taught to parade themselves as if they were objects, that even small children cannot escape the reach of pornography which harms their development and their future relationships? Come to think of it, those questions are exactly what Habakkuk is saying. He's just doing so in Iron Age terms, not Information Age words. That is exactly what he's asking. Habakkuk is asking if God, if God isn't really rather a bad policeman. Like, like this video. Take a look. Now, I'm told that that was staged. Well, they did a good job, made it look like somebody with their cell phone camera. But it surely depicts Habakkuk's concerns really well. He's wondering if God's just impotent, if he's, if he's insensitive to, to not just human pain, but his own responsibilities. Maybe Yahweh doesn't even realize what a bad job he's doing. Maybe this is all the pride he takes in his work. Maybe he's just insensate to how shoddy things really are. That's what the prophet questions God about, his, his indifference, his insensitivity. And in response, Habakkuk is introduced to the idea of God's sovereign ways. Look at verse 5. God speaks, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe, that you will not believe when you hear about it. The discussion turns right here. Not, not just for Habakkuk, but for each of us. This is a perfect 
verse for our annual wonder vision, not to be confused with wonder vision. Um, God's word speaks here. God's word speaks and says to all of us, oh, look who knows so much, right? God Almighty is just that. He is almighty. He is at work in ways we can't see or often choose not to see. In fact, God is so intricately involved. Look, look at the verbs. We have to look. We've got to take time and observe. We have to think deeply because otherwise we will miss how ingrained is his will. For example, what, what is this? This is, this is wood, right? Cross sections of newly harvested trees. All right, now I want you to stop and observe up close. Look closely. What do you see? You see the grain, right? You see the grain of the wood. God is ingrained into the warp and woof of this world. His sovereignty is so deeply ingrained that one has to really stop and look to see it. God's work's clearly there in the, the xylem and phloem of life, but you, you have to observe closely to see the detail. And that's hard to do when you're moving really fast through life. You, you don't see the grain. You hardly see the wood. The grain's invisible, which brings up another one of the benefits of the unintentional disciplines. Not only do they force us to be honest with God about our burdens, they make us slow down and see things differently. The unintentional disciplines slow us down and help us observe the grain. When my brother and I were children, our mother had two very interesting practices to which she was totally committed. First, we didn't go back to school until we had gotten completely caught up. Here's what she would do. If we were really, really sick on, on Monday, you know, Sunday night, Monday, um, mom would call the school. And if it looked like it was going to be more than a one-day illness, she would ask for an entire week's worth of work. Um, and, then, and then Monday, Tuesday, we're really sick. Wednesday, we start feeling better. Her friends in the school had brought us, and, and we were to sit up in bed, and we start doing the work. And then Thursday and Friday, when we were well, by the way, I see all the educators out here glaring at me. I am not advocating this. I'm just telling an illustration. <sighs> Chill out. It's okay. Um, anyway, boy, I mean, like laser. Do you see the holes in the state? Anyway, um, Thursday and Friday, we couldn't go back to school. We stayed home instead, and we just did all the work and caught up. So when we went back the next Monday, we were not only caught up, we were actually usually ahead. That was mom's practice number one with illness. Her practice number two was... On the day you felt worse, the, the first Monday, let's say, when you were at your sickest, she would always walk in and say, don't waste a good illness. And she would do that when you were at your lowest because you were too sick to actually throw things at her, which is what you wanted to do. But, but she was right. You know what she was saying? She was saying, slow down, child. Look, look at the grain of life. You've got a great opportunity here in this unintentional discipline to dialogue with God, to search your soul for needed cleansing and change. That's what God does for Habakkuk. Look, he, he says, hey, don't waste this time of pain. Look, observe what's really going on in the world. It is so far beyond your vision, you wouldn't believe it if I spelled it out for you. God's sovereign ways are not our ways. And when we are introduced to them at first, they can seem frightening and overwhelming. When you, when you first think life through, like Habakkuk, God's sovereignty seems like, uh, like ammonia, like something that is too strong to use in an undiluted form. But, but when you start really cleaning, then you realize just how wonderful a song, strong solvent is like God's sovereignty. God's sovereign ways are an amazing source of cleansing and comfort, but you've got to stop. You've got to use them. You've got to, to look and listen to cross that street. Again, Pastor Morgan is one of the few to plumb these depths. This book has not received the attention it deserves. Look at his comments from 100 years ago. He said, the book teaches us 
that the true viewpoint of God's sovereignty is obtained when the discussion of these problems is carried into the presence of God, giving him opportunity to tell us his secrets. When Habakkuk tried living in a day, he wailed, Oh God, you're doing nothing! But when he began to breathe the subconsciousness of eternity and touch the infinitude of deity, then he said, God is doing everything. Beautiful. God is doing everything. And he even gets down to specifics. In verse 6, God starts a detailed description of exactly what he is doing about all the ugliness of this Judean society that was so bothering Habakkuk. Go to verse 6. Verse 6. Look. There's that word again. Look. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. That's key. Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. In our notes, we summarize this section this way. God describes some specifics, some specifics of his plan to work good through bad. Let me share a brief history lesson so all this makes sense to us. Okay, About 1,500 years before Habakkuk was born, about roughly 2,000 B.C., a guy named Abraham was promised by God that his offspring would be given this land to settle on. Uh, about 500 years later, Joshua led Moses first on the east side of the Jordan, Joshua on the west side. They led the Israelites in, and they, to some degree, took possession of this land. About 500 years after that, <clears throat> the guy named David was king. His son Solomon became king after him, and they extended that, that kingdom all the way to what you see on this red line. <clears throat> now, they never took possession of all the territory that God promised in an unconditional promise. <clears throat> he promised Moses that they would take even more territory than that. They've never done that, though that, I think that will happen. But they did make this a pretty big kingdom. However, after Solomon, anybody know what happened? What happened to this kingdom? It divided, right. The northern kingdom kept the name of Israel. The southern kingdom was called what? Anybody know? Judah, right. Now, about 100 years before Habakkuk, or about 350 years after Solomon, something like that, uh, these people, the Assyrians, who were the big gorilla on the block, they controlled all of the Middle East trade life, they, uh, they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them away. The Assyrians were really nasty people, so were the, the northern Israelis, and they took them and they just blended into Assyrian culture. Okay, now we get to our text here. What God is saying is that another kingdom, Babylon, is going to rise up from an ancient land, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Chaldeans. Now, right now, Babylon, when God says this, is just a, just a subservient state Probably the wealthiest, best fighting, but the subservient state to Assyria. God says they're going to overthrow the Assyrian domination that has ruled the world for 300 years, and they're going to conquer everything, including Judah. These Babylonians were well organized. They fought hard. They were shock troops. They absorbed peoples even better than the Assyrians did. They were a very nasty, pagan, sex-crazed people. These are the people that God says he's bringing in to clean up the problems in Judah. Habakkuk and God are dialoguing in the days just before Babylon is going to rise up, take over the world, and, and, and what you see on this map is what the text says is going to happen. You got it? So when God speaks not much longer, Babylon's going to overthrow the kingdom of Judah and carry off the Jews into captivity. That's what God promised to Habakkuk, and that's exactly what occurred not too long after this. Now, understanding that pronouncement, some of us are recoiling, right? 
We're thinking, God, how did you use nasty people for your work? I said things were bad. I didn't say I wanted to get worse, right? Okay, hang on to that thought because we're going to get to that next week. Habakkuk is going to ask that exact question. God is going to use, God is going to use bad tip people and bad times for his good. He is in charge. He tells Habakkuk that he is going to bring good through the use of scary, horrible people like these Chaldean Babylonians. That's what you see when you slow down and you look and you listen to God. You, you see the interesting warp and woof of the wood. A songwriter named Jason Gray wrote a powerful piece about this. He said this, maybe you were hurt by the lies of someone else, or maybe even worse, were the lies you told yourself. Maybe you're the one holding up the wall, or maybe you're the one with the wrecking ball. Even though it's hard to believe, even with everything you've seen, even this will be made beautiful. Even this will be made beautiful. Do you feel the pain of every blow that knocked you down? Do you bear the shame of every wound you handed out? No matter what you gave or what you received, if you were left or the one to leave, even though it's hard to hope again, this is not the bitter end. Even this will be made beautiful. All God's people said, scatter the ashes on the wind. Everything will be born again in his time, in his hands. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, let's review. Habakkuk questions God about his seeming indifference, his insensitivity. God answers with an introduction to his sovereignty. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. And and then God adds specifics about how he is going to work good out of bad, right? And I said that Habakkuk is the Archimedes of life's tough problems. Follow his path. Do what Habakkuk did. Engage with God and learn from him in the midst of your own pain. But I have to give you one last warning. The Lord has a remarkable talent. Even while he's comforting us, even while he's showing us, he has a remarkable talent for turning the whole conversation into an expose of the things that need to change about us. If you do the right thing and you talk honestly with God, as Habakkuk did, and I hope you will, know this, he is going to love you enough to expose you to you. I know that's good. I know we all want to grow up. But it can really, really sting, and I just want you to be forewarned. You see, that's exactly what happens to Habakkuk. It's subtle but powerful. Look at verse 11, our last verse. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. The, it doesn't translate in English really well. The way that's written is they're not going to last. They are, they are just for a moment, okay? Uh, they are guilty. Their strength is their God. Stop there. What's going on here? God reminds Habakkuk of the haunting universal truth that salvation is not found in human strength. Humans find that hard to remember for some reason. This verse, this verse now applies both to Babylon and to Habakkuk. This is so cool. Look here. Look here. Okay. The Babylon idea is fairly obvious, right? These pagans are overrunning the world. They think their strength is the reason they worship their own strength. That is their source of justice and sovereignty. So deep inside, Habakkuk surely cheering. Yay! Verse 11, the idea that Babylon is going to sweep away. They someday will be held accountable. They deserve it. But as the prophet listens, the focus shifts. Oh... You see, the first they is very specific in the Hebrew. It's a specific pronoun, which means it applies to the nearest antecedent, which is Babylon. So Babylon's going to pass through. But the second they, oh, 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 in the Hebrew, that's a neutral universal pronoun, which means that it applies to everyone. Everyone is guilty and thinks their strength is their God. 
That had to hurt Habakkuk. He's worshiping his own strength just as much as anybody else is. Ouch. Now we see that and we think, thank goodness we're not like that. (laughs) Thank goodness that doesn't apply to us today. (laughs) This is a really powerful, if subtle, slap on the back of the head from a loving God. He jars us into seeing the ways that we worship human strength, and we do. We deify our nutrition. We worship our health. We, we, we turn country or, or military or economy into an idol. We, we think, we literally think less of people who have physical or mental handicaps. We judge each other by, by physique or skin color or bank account or influence. We really live as if salvation was achieved by human strength, and that was the most important thing. Ouch. Verse 11 is an important wake-up call for Habakkuk and for every one of us. Of course, we're thankful for it. We don't want to be off-focus. We don't want to foolishly live as idolaters. And that's why we engage with God in the hard times and the unintentional disciplines. That's why we engage with God when everything around us looked dark. Because he loves us enough to listen to us, to comfort us, to talk with us, and to change us. Let's pray about that. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that you will change us, that you will change me. It's horrifying and important for me to stop and realize how much I, I find my sense of justice from myself and not from you. I... I worship my own strength, which is, which is hilarious, but, um, but I do, and I'm sorry. And with my brothers and sisters, we confess to you that our strength is nothing, that it all comes back to that discipline of grace we mentioned some time ago, learning to be empowered by you because our strength is nothing. Father, I pray that will be what happens to us every day, that every day, both through intentional and unintentional disciplines, I will, and my brothers and sisters in Christ will, come to you and engage with you. And when things are really dark, cry and battle with you so that we can be changed. Comforted, yes, but especially changed. And Lord, I pray for anybody, anybody who is studying with us, wherever they may be, I ask you to, I ask you to draw them to you if they don't know you as Savior. Friend, listen, your justice is not found in human opinion. Strength is not found in human beings. You are not your own God. You're weak, just like me. You've sinned just as I have. And that sin separates you from the holy God. But God loves you so much that he wants you to cry out to him so you can see how weak you are. And then you can learn the most incredible news ever given. That God himself, God the Son, came to earth and he died on a cross willingly, taking the sin So that everyone who believes in him could in their weakness be made strong because he paid for that sin and he rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you have everlasting life. 
right now, trust him. If you've never done so, believe in Jesus as Savior. If you just, if you just trusted Jesus as Savior this morning, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Good for you. Amen. Father, I ask you to bless all of these believers in Christ. I ask you to encourage us that we may find that in our weakness you are made strong. In Jesus' name, amen.